feeling stuck in your current job? Looking for a career pivot? Are you a proven leader looking to step up? The University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business prepares students to meet challenges, solve problems, and obtain a profound understanding of how to operate in the modern economy. With MBA and MS programs offering flexible options to fit your lifestyle and goals. GMAT and GRE not required. Learn more today at go.umd.edu slash smithschool. University of Maryland Smith School of Business. Inspired. Fearless. Unstoppable. Brad Parks is a critically acclaimed and award-winning author of Say Nothing and a whole bunch of other books, too. And he's also the only author to have won the Seamus, Nero, and Lefty Awards, three of crime fiction's most prestigious prizes. We're happy to have him join us on Big Blend Radio's Champagne Sunday show today to discuss his second riveting thriller. It's called Closer Than You Know. Right there, that title just tells you that. And it comes out March 6, 2018. So everybody get your champagne ready. It is definitely a must-read, especially for fans of domestic suspense. And I didn't even know there was such a category as domestic suspense, but there is. And uh, once you start reading it, you're like, dude, that really is closer than you know and too close for home sometimes. So (laughs) I know. Welcome, Brad. How are you? Hey, Lisa. Hey, Nancy. How are you guys? Good. We're doing good. We're excited to have you on the show. As we were saying earlier, um, you're one of those authors that make us stay awake really into the wee hours of the morning, and then you start looking at everybody you know and start thinking, so what What haven't they told us? <laughs> so, <laughs> so in other words, not only am I causing sleep deprivation, I'm causing paranoia. Yeah, I like that. like that. Actually, That's I'm cool. going to take that. Okay, good, good. You know, this is really interesting to me before we get to the book, um, your journey as an author. And the, the reality about why we're staying up late reading your book is, number one, it's an excellent stories, and it you know, keeps you on the edge of your seat. And also, it's like, damn, dude, <laughs> you know, when you're reading this. You know? But um, things flow really fast, and, and you put your, you're right in it when you're reading. Does it come from your background of being in, in the news world and writing in newspapers? Well, oh, I think absolutely. Uh, you know, I was I was a newspaper reporter for 20 years before I turned to this novel writing thing. And um, th- this may get a little too scatological here at the top of the show, but I think you guys can handle this. I, for many years, I had a toilet next to the computer that I wrote on. And the reason for this, this is a little gross, admittedly, but, you know, in an oh, old-fashioned newspaper, you, you know, you, you start with the, the part of the, the, the story that's on the cover, and then you've got to go to the jump to read the next of it. And, you know, I was a sports writer. Most of the time, it's people kind of reading when they're doing other things, if you know what I mean. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a little bit difficult to get them to actually want to turn to the jump. And so my, my goal was always, can I get them to turn to the jump? Can I hook them in that first 200 words or so? And that's really still what I try to do as a fiction author. I'm, I'm trying to hook you right away as fast as possible and suck you into the story as much as I can. Well, you do a really good job. I know, I know. <laughs> now, Closer Than You Know, it's, um, a, it's not tied into your other books, right? No, it is, it is a standalone. Okay, but now I need to go back. I need to go start reading backwards, which I'm good at. <laughs> you, so you're going to read the Hebrew edition is what you're saying. Okay, good yeah, luck Yeah, why that. not? Well, I know your books are published in other countries. Isn't that what happened uh, with Say Nothing, that that ended yeah. up in different countries? Yeah, it, it got translated into 12 languages, which is, which is really impressive because I had English teachers as a kid who would tell you I couldn't even write in English. Uh, so it's, it's been really heartening to see what's happened. 
Well, that's interesting. So, mm-hmm. I mean, when you're in school, versus, I mean, because didn't you start at a very young age, what, 14? Yeah, um, yeah. And then did what you were learning and writing for newspapers at that time, what were your teachers saying versus what you were actually getting paid to do? Well, so I might have been that kid in the back of the class who wasn't necessarily paying all that careful attention, Lisa. Um, when, mm. when you mentioned earlier that it is both National Grammar Day and National Pound Cake Day, I am personally going to celebrate National Pound Cake Day. I'm with you. Because <laughs> the grammar thing in me, you know, we weren't always seeing eye to eye when in the eighth grade when they're diagramming sentences. I was probably the kid staring out the window dreaming up of, you know, some story that was only in my head and had nothing to do with what the uh, the teacher was doing at the blackboard. But, um, no, I just I started writing. You know, really the thing that hooked me on writing was not the writing itself. It was actually being read that I realized I enjoyed because I was covering sports for my little local hometown paper and I would write some dreadful story. I mean, no, I was not a good writer starting out. Um, So, you know, I I would be covering girls basketball and I would say something like, you know, the Darien high school girls basketball team were like guppies coming into a shark tank when they played the Ridgefield Tigers on Friday night, you know, or something like that. I mean, you know, really high level award-winning stuff. And then the, the parents who were reading these articles about their daughters would go, Hey, Brad, guppies in a shark tank. That's good stuff, man. And, you know, when you're 14 years old, you're like, oh, my God, I have developed a readership. Um, and so I, I just I got hooked on, on, on really telling stories and on, on kind of moving people through words. And, and that's really all I've ever tried to do since then. Hmm. There is something to be said for that, you know, and I know that um, having lived in different countries um, and lived in a, in a lot of British colonial places, when you come back to the States, you realize how Americans don't really care as much about grammar as the British do. And, and, you find, and then you read a British novel and you're like, well, okay, how come you don't write like you talk? Because they get really into grammar. Hmm. Right. And then over here, we don't really care. Well, I, I always think that, like, tell a, write a book the way you tell a story around a campfire. Hmm, and, yeah. and you're probably not going to get all that concerned about exactly how you're wording things. I mean, I, I think there's, you know, some of the, the great storytelling traditions out there are oral traditions. And there's a mm-hmm. reason for that. Everybody loves to be around the campfire and hear a story. So I think that's always kind of been my, my organizing principle. And, and therefore, you'll, you'll notice my sentences are not going to be too overly complex. And I mean, that's, that's part of having been a newspaper reporter, too. But it's, it's really, you know, I want the story to matter more than the mm. words. Well, you know, let's go to Closer Than You Know, because you've got Melanie Barrick. Um, she's your main lady, and you're, you know, writing with a woman's perspective there. How does that feel? <laughs> <laughs> Especially so as was, a mommy. <laughs> It was it was a little intimidating. I have uh, I have 43 years of experience uh, being a guy, uh, not much experience being a woman. I have to admit. But as I thought about this story, so the, the story for those of your, your listeners who don't know is uh, this young mother, Melanie Barrick. She comes home from work one day to pick up her infant son from childcare. He has been taken away by social services, and no one will tell her why. So, it, you know, it's this nightmare scenario right off the bat. And I think as I thought about this book of, a, okay, a parent whose child is taken away by social services, they're being framed by someone, they don't know what's going on. 
that story was mm. just going to be more compelling from the female perspective, period. Oh, the, yeah. the, the, the mother is, is simply, especially the mother of a nursing child. I mean, that's a special bond. I saw it with my wife and my own kids um, that, you know, sorry to all you dads out there. And I, I was a stay-at-home dad, but there's a, there's a special level to that bond between a mother and a child. And uh, so I was going to really have to tell this thing through the women's perspective. And so I was kind of intimidated. And then I got into the story, and the, the really remarkable thing was the gender thing disappeared really quickly. Because in any given scene I was writing, what mattered was not the gender of the character. It was, okay, what does this person want? What does this person need? How are they going to get it? What's standing in their way? Kind of the same questions I'd always asked about my male characters. Um, and it, it, it quickly came to remind me of a bumper sticker a friend of mine has that I really like. It says, Feminism is the radical notion that women are people. And that's really how I decided to treat this female protagonist, not as a female protagonist, but as a human protagonist who happens to be female. And uh, yeah, so really the, the gender thing really disappeared for me really pretty quickly. The, uh, the, the one thing, and I know, I, uh, forgive me for rambling, but uh, this was just sort of funny. The one thing I did to kind of, I hate to say it, pander to the female audience, right, was, okay, I have this young mother. She's nursing. Um, you know, she is trying to keep her milk up so that she can t mm. continue nursing this child when, when the child is returned to her. And uh, so I have all these kind of references to, I mean, you know, it's deeply uncomfortable when, you know, your breasts are getting hard. You don't have a baby to let off the pressure, all this kind of stuff. So um, the, my, my agent was the first person to read. It. She's a, a mother of two children, and she's like, yeah, this is a good book, but too many references to breastfeeding. So I cut out some of the references, and then my editor read it, and she's a mother of two children, and she's like, yeah, uh, great book, too much breastfeeding. So I took some more out, and then my publisher read it, and she's a woman, and she's like, why is there so much breastfeeding in this book? So I took some more out, and then the sales director, also a woman, read it, and it was like, what's with the breastfeeding? So by the time it was all said and done, I think there were maybe four references to breastfeeding left in it. So, so much for my, my, my efforts to connect with the female readership. Wow, how much breastfeeding did you have in well, there? The breastfeeding, well, apparently, the breastfeeding apparently uh, a little too much. Well, well when, when there was a, there's a part in there where, you know, she's got all this milk and now her baby's gone and she's like, oh, no, now I've got to let the milk out and, and she hasn't, you know, she's still got to get to her husband and all of this stuff has happened, her house is torn apart and all of this stuff is going on with her and yet now she has to play with the breast milk and it's like, that's an intimate thing, you know, that yeah. brings you into a different part of here's this chaos and it's bringing up all of her past, uh, you know, being a child. And, and I think that is a huge part of it is to have your baby taken away, not know what's going on, but it really goes how you connect that to her past of, um, you know, bouncing around from foster home to foster home and then suddenly going back home, which wasn't pleasant or good at all, um, that brings up a whole bunch. Yeah, well, and that was actually kind of a, a little bit of serendipity. Of I, I knew I wanted to be writing this book set in the world of foster care, and uh, I was coming home from work one day, and we had this babysitter there, um, and I overheard. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. My 
daughter asking her, do you have any brothers and sisters? And this babysitter said, oh, yes, I've had 20 or 30. And, you know, you mm. kind of hear the record scratch at that what? point. You're like, what's going on here? It turns out she had grown up in foster care. And that's when mm. the light bulb turned on for me. Oh, my goodness, I'm going to have this this woman plunged into this nightmare in the system. And, and Nancy, it was perfect at the top of the show when you talked about the system, because that's how everybody refers to it. And mm-hmm. who better to know the nightmare of the system than someone who had grown up in it? So at that point, I, I actually interviewed my babysitter to talk to her about her experiences. And then I read, you know, three or four or five memoirs about the foster care system uh, and kind of, you know, you stir them all together in that authorly way. But but, yeah, I, I think that really brought things home for Melanie Barrick and it, because the, the nightmare is just right in front of her. My baby has been taken away by the system. I know better than anybody how really, truly tough the system can be on a child. You, you know, uh, the the words the system. I grew up in the welfare system. Mm. Uh, my my father was disabled, and we had social workers that visited our house once a month, supposedly. Interesting enough, and all I ever heard as a kid growing up is the system, the system. That I yeah, yeah. like the first couple pages of your book, the system, and I got this like, oh God, <laughs> you know, this like cold freezing hand. I'm like, not again, no. Go away, because I've always thought the system's really interesting because a system is something put in place so things will work, and it's totally the opposite. Yeah. So, so I don't know what a, the word uh, system means anymore. Yeah, it, it, I will, uh, I'll, I'll actually quote from my book, uh, if, if you don't mind. This is page mm. 15 from Closer Than You Know. Um, Once you were in the system, there was no easy way out. Its collective machinery acted like a giant steel maw, trapping you between its sharpened incisors, tearing another chunk out of you every time you jerked or squirmed. Yep. That, to me, is the nature of the system. Yep. Man. Man, you know, but that's – it's. I think it's so important that people understand that and, and just even understanding – I mean, you've got all the political stuff going on, too, and, and just the whole – Thing of what happens with trying to, you know, track a criminal, and there's all of these things happening, all at the same time, and you start to really look at the system and go, how protected are we? No, <laughs> you know, because right. at the same time, some things are really good, and then there's human interest that gets involved, which sometimes is a good thing, and sometimes is the egotistical human interest we see in politics <laughs> every day. <Right. laughs> One of the things, if if I may praise myself, that I, I really liked about this novel, though, is, okay, so we, we sort of set up social services as being the bad guy here, right? Because they mm-hmm. have come in and taken away this child. And yet, you can read this novel from a completely different perspective, and that is, and I, and I talked to social workers uh, to, for research of the book, and I would hope, and I think, a social worker will read this novel, mm. and everything that happens, they would say, yes, that is what mm-hmm. I have to do. Because, you know, this book is told from the perspective of the mother, but the mm-hmm. social worker is concerned about the child. Yeah, and in this case, exactly. they are protecting the best interest of the child, and that absolutely justifies everything that is done in this novel. And that, you know, and that's the kind of novel I love, where the bad guy is actually not truly the bad guy. Uh, you know, they are they are doing exactly what we pay our social workers to do, which is protect children. And uh, and and especially when they are presented with, and this gets a little deeper into the novel that again, your listeners haven't read yet. But it, you know, when they are presented with a credible tip that. Uh, the mother has been dealing drugs 
Well, they have mm-hmm. to investigate that. And then they're given yeah. another tip that the, the mother is trying to sell her baby on the black market. Well, now they have no choice but to act. Uh, and that's what sets the system into motion in this book. Um, mm-hmm. And so, again, you, you know, you, uh, any social worker will read this and go, yep, that's exactly what you have to do. And, you know, and I that's guess, the, but that, I, and it's the hard part for everybody. Right, but right. There's a, there's a, um, there's a loss of humanity sometimes. I think because every social worker is different and handles things in a different way, even though they have to do exactly the same thing. Some um, are the type who'll just walk in, pull the kid, and and not care if the kid screams. Others will will be a little gentler. Some care what the parents are going through. Some don't. You know, right, right. I I know from so many visitors of social workers that you know you had your favorite ones. And then you had like, oh no, not that yeah. one. Because, oh no. Because yeah, there's a there's there's a line in this book from Melanie Barrick about how she had a a five second test for social workers, and that she could generally yeah. tell within five seconds whether the social worker was you know one of the good ones or was one of the ones just there to punch the clock. And uh, she has a line in yep. there about how one of one of the social workers she bumped across fails the five second test after two seconds. Yeah, um, well, we used because, to yeah, watch them get out that. of their car. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we go upstairs, watch them get out of the car, and we knew by the way they got out of the car and slammed the door. Right. We're like, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, look, that is a – again, to, to bring – that I do have some sympathy for, for the folks on the other side. That is a tough – tough job, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are overworked, you are underpaid, yep. you exactly. have a very limited set of, of circumstances and, and, and of things mm-hmm. that you can actually do for a child. Yep. And, um, and by the way, there's a, there's a judge behind you the whole time. And there's a, you know, the rest of the social service system behind you kind of looking over your shoulder and, and ready to second guess everything you do. And if God forbid, it is that, that one in a thousand, one in a hundred thousand case where there, there really is some nightmare scenario going on, you have to act. I mean, and, and you will, you know, you're, you're more likely to lose your job for not acting than you are for acting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's every, every social worker knows that. So, you know, they're, they're in a tough spot too. Yeah, but there's a downward spiral that can happen when you're locked in the system. Right, mm-hmm. right. And it's, it, and it's really hard to get out. And, you know, and you got that in the book really, really well. And, you know, that's, I to me, but social workers need way more help than they get, and they yeah. also exactly. need way more training yeah, than what they probably get. Well, and, the, you know, there's a lot of situations that present themselves that, frankly, you couldn't train a human being for, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we really True. rely on, on them making judgment calls. And this is, again, where I, I do have a great deal of sympathy for the social worker is, mm-hmm. you know, when a judge in a courtroom has to make a decision – they have time to ponder it. They have time to look at precedents. They have time to research. Man, a social worker is making those kind of judgments, snap, bang, five seconds. You've got to make yep. that call. And, yep. man, they are not easy calls to make. And so I, I, I do have, as, for as much as I make the social worker the bad guy in large parts of this novel, I do have a great deal of sympathy for them. It's really not the social worker. It's the system. <laughs> right. It goes back to the system. There, well, I think it's also a very dangerous career. It's, it is. It's dangerous Gandhi. for everybody. It's just like you know, domestic violence and mm-hmm. those cases that you know the police have to go to, or anybody around it. Anything can happen at any time, and I think that's what's so volatile about these kinds of stories you're reading. And it very and and the fact is, it's very real and very true. You know, there's there's a case right now. Um, 
out in 29 Palms, California, near Joshua uh, Tree National yeah. Park. You saw yeah. that, right? And, oh, sure. And everybody, it blew up everywhere that, you know, these kids were, you know, like the underground kids and being mm-hmm. held. And as soon as I was reading your book, I'm like, dude. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. but they were turned out that the parents were, you know, poor. And, I mean, it's cold out there at night. I know about high high desert winters. They are freezing cold. And these kids are out there in the middle of the desert, and I know the I know about the in the summer. I know about the bugs and the snakes. I don't. It's just it's mean. But at the same time, this is a predicament that families are in these days. Um, you know, the, we've done so many shows on homelessness, and at one point, the average age of a homeless person in this country, and it's not just you know everyone thinking, oh, so and so is an alcoholic or a oh, drug God. addict, right. and or right. come back from war. It's nine years old. And yeah. and it's scary. And then because of the system, maybe they're out in that kind of thing, like what's going on in the desert, or they've luckily found them. But or they they run from the system. The kids totally flat out bail. And I well, don't blame and, them. <laughs> yeah, and that and that is why uh, Melanie Barrick, the protagonist of Closer Than You Know, is abandoned by her parents when she was nine years old. Hmm. Just boom. That's got to be heartbreaking, too. I mean, there's just so much. And how do you move forward with that? Right, and that's right. what, another theme in your book, too. And I think that's great about Melanie was she was like, OK, all this, you know, negative stuff, hurtful stuff happened in my life. Now I'm making a difference. And her child was her world. I mean, wanting her home and, you know, I want the stability. That was such a huge deal for her. And so when that just immediately got swiped away, and so fast because she's a new mom. <laughs> you know? Right, right. That was yeah. Really I, I really, uh, I think I connect more emotionally with Melanie Barrick than any protagonist I've ever written. Um, and and one of the reasons that I, I really just came to like her a lot. I mean, she's she's smart, uh, she's strong-willed, uh, she is self-reliant. But really, it is that resilience of you know before the book even begins. Look, she was abandoned by her parents when she was nine years old. She bounced from foster care to group home to foster care to group home, and yet she came out of it normal. And that was actually that was really based on my kid's babysitter. Uh, up until my kid's babysitter said, oh, I've had 20 or 30 brothers and sisters, I had no idea she had been raised in foster care. Mm-hmm. She was just a local college student that I had found. She seemed to have a good head on her shoulders. She was you know, bright and she was punctual and she loved the kids and she was great. And so like, I had no idea of her backstory. And anybody meeting Melanie Barrick would feel the same way. Like she is this young woman with her life completely together, despite all of these things that have happened to her. So, uh, yeah. And I, and I did, if it, I don't know if it makes me. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible, but at Grand Canyon university, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Seemed like less of a bad guy, but I really did feel guilty about all of the terrible things I do to her in this novel. I want you, you guys really to know do. that. <laughs> I, I had to put a space between her and reading it and me because, you know, every morning, you wouldn't believe what happened to her now. Yeah. I was like, man, let up on her. 
Yeah, oh, I know. Believe me, when I was when I was coming home from writing this novel, I would talk to my wife and I'd be like, "You have no idea what I did today. I feel terrible." <laughs> but you know, I mean, because I I have her accused of dealing drugs. I have her, you know, she assaults a police officer by accident, so she gets thrown in jail. Uh, you know, she. I mean, I, I don't want to ruin too much of the novel, but I, I mm. think actually the low point was she had to get a job if she was going to get her kid back. Oh, because yeah. by the way, I'd gotten her fired from her first job, and so I made her work at Waffle House. <laughs> I think that was that was really truly because I mean, I, I don't. Do they have a lot of Waffle Houses out in Arizona? That uh, might be no, more. No, but of a... actually, here in Tucson we have one. And listen, Waffle Houses. We used to live in Florida. Listen, they're an institution. They yeah. are an important part of the culture because you can have them smothered, covered. You can. I mean, this, there's a thing about road trips and Waffle House go hand in hand. And yeah. I would be a spokesperson for Waffle House if I could. Yes, they, it is an important part of the social fabric. <laughs> However, you don't want to be part of working. Those poor no, people get don't. paid two dollars and thirteen cents an hour, and oh. that scattered, smothered, and covered that is giving you a thousand calories to be able to go on and rock on with your day is costing you five dollars. So you're you're probably leaving about a dollar fifty tick tip if the waitress is lucky. So uh, you know it's man, that's some tough work right there working at a Waffle House. Well, and then you, yeah. when, it's so funny, especially all the people at two in the morning that have been partying all night. But this is, right. <laughs> this is exactly why the system doesn't work is because the judge will tell you to do She's something <laughs> that is really not that possible. Right. Like right. we're, we're going to throw you in jail and we'll let you out if you get a job. Oh, thanks, because now I have a record, you know, and seriously. But these are things that happen. That's well, what yeah. right, I think right. is so cool about your book. I mean, this stuff is reality. And, you know, I, I, I know people, I know Nancy and I can tell some crazy stories and people look at us and then you you know we meet people like that too and you and people don't believe you because right, it's right. things i mean it's it's unbelievable but these stories happen all the time and it's in our backyards everywhere you know it's the same thing as human trafficking is happening in regular america suburbia you know it's happening and it, you know in schools it's happening all over these kinds of crazy things and it's it's hard to believe but it's it's really true I wanted to ask, I know that probably a gazillion people ask you this, but ever see this being like like a series, like a, like a mini-series on TV or some kind of movie because it just moves so much like it could be? So um, be. do you have any, uh, any friends at any major studios who would like to make an offer for the rights? Because <laughs> I'll, I, I'll I'll have a, I have a phone number I can give them. Um, <laughs> we we um we yeah, we we've had some uh, you, you never know so it's it's a funny thing with with, with uh, writing books the the first time you get a studio calling you you get so excited right oh my goodness it's a you know Miramax wants my book and you you know you start dreaming of uh, of uh, you know Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts playing the lead um, and then <laughs> and then the reality is uh, there's some 22 year old intern who's going to take your book that you you slaved on for a year poured your sweat blood and tears into and they're going to turn it into a two-page treatment that will then <laughs> that will then not get read by anyone and it ends there pretty much so I, I really I actually yes I would love it if it got turned into a movie but that's really not what I'm thinking about most of the time like I, I really am just worried about the book and worried about giving you the best reading experience you can have mm. because that's the thing I can control the the movie thing you know you, you can't control at all uh, Tess Gerritsen has a great line she says uh, having your book made by Hollywood is like sending your child to a daycare center 
run by Jeffrey Dahmer. And I guess I always just keep that in mind. And then you come home and you can't get your kid out because it's been taken away so, because right. something happened. <laughs> yeah, but the so they turn your book into a sitcom called The System. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. That's a, okay, so you need to talk about, okay, you've got these characters and, and everything and, oh, Julia Roberts and everything. When you're writing, are you picturing these characters? Do you, you know, I know you're talking about the babysitter, but um, – and that could be a whole story in itself. Oh boy, <laughs> could that be a story? But, but um, <laughs> do do you know, like, do you look at people and go, oh, yeah. you know, I want Melanie to look like this, or you know what I mean? Yeah, Talk about every that every character in my book, I can close my eyes and see that person. Uh, I can I know exactly what they sound like. Uh, I'm not really terrific with voices, but I kind of will do voices. Uh, because oh, they wow. have conversations in my head. So, and, and every cool. scene I write, I can actually, again, close my eyes and see the scene kind of playing out on the back of my eyelids. So it's, and, and I'm kind of just choosing what from that scene I want to be able to tell you about as an author. What is, what is the most important image? What is the most important thing being said? What's the most important thing happening? And that's what I pull out. But, yeah, I see absolutely everything, and I hear absolutely everything going on in my head. Um, so it, it does get a little crowded up there sometimes. Uh, and, yes, I do talk to myself. Uh, so, you know, if you ever walk by me when I'm writing and I'm muttering, I'm, I'm not having a paranoid delusion. I'm not having a psychic break. It's just – the process working the way the process is supposed to work. Don't worry. You should you come know, work with us. You better be careful. <laughs> you could you could end up in the system. I know, I know. So so when you're writing, this is that's an interesting thing. Are you do you have like a study? Do you go off to a different land? I mean, other than you know the voices in your head. Are you going to another you know area? Some people retreat off into a cabin yeah. in the woods. Yeah, so, or they do Starbucks at four in the morning. <laughs> so speaking of Waffle House, I'm not not that mm. far off. I actually write at a Hardee's restaurant. No do you way. guys know what a Hardee's is? Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I think out on your coast it's more Carl's Jr., but it's the same yeah. idea. Uh, so it's it's a fast food restaurant that, um, and this is the key thing. One, it has free refills on Coke Zero, uh, which is my my bubbly <sighs> of choice, especially in the morning. And two, it has no wireless internet. So I am completely wow. and totally away from email, from social media, from YouTube, from all of it. When I am at Hardy's, all I am doing is writing. So Hardy's has become my little writing sanctuary. Are you writing longhand or are you using No, I have a laptop. Word? Yeah. Again, okay. but it's it's a laptop that is not connected yeah. to the internet. Yeah. And by yeah. the way, my phone is a circa two thousand seven flip phone. So <laughs> I do not have the internet in my pocket. Um these but, are the things yeah. I do for you, uh, the, the reader, because otherwise it would take me six years to write a book because I would be scurrying off to YouTube and looking at shark videos like everyone else. Uh, so but no, now, when I'm at Hardee's, all I'm doing is writing. Okay, and now are you watching people while you're there? Because <laughs> to me that's the thing is to watch how people move. Um, there's mannerisms, and then if you start to know you know, the, the wait staff, then you start to know their mannerisms. And right. <laughs> Well, so to a certain extent, I mean, sometimes I'm just completely in the scene I'm writing, and the world that's going on around me does not exist at all. Uh, and then there are times when I'm looking up. Like, uh, so uh, Melanie Barrick, who is the protagonist of Closer Than You Know, is actually named after the breakfast shift manager at the Hardee's where I write. Um, <laughs> nothing else about Melanie, that Melanie Barrick uh, translates to my Melanie Barrick, but I, I just like the name. Or uh, there's a character in this book, Mr. Honeywell, the uh, Melanie mm-hmm. Barrick's attorney, 
who is this guy with, you know, kind of the sad sack guy with big bulging eyes and bags under his eyes and kind of sloppy clothes. He is based on a guy I see come into Hardee's every single morning. Uh, all I have done is taken the physical version of him and then completely filled him with this own fictional fantasy life that I have given him. But yeah, it was just, I was, uh, you know, Melanie needed a lawyer and I look up one day and there's this sad sack guy. And I said, that looks like a ham and egg lawyer to me. So I, you know, describe him exactly as I see him. Um, that is probably most of the time I am not looking at Hardee's for the inspiration for my characters. Uh, <laughs> but every now and then it, it works out that way. Hey, it's good to have people around. Just, I think it's just a, they're, they're, well, people watching. I just that's like to, a hoot. Yeah, people watching is cool. I mean, it just is. It's, yeah, it's just, well, and one of, the, one of the hard things for me about this gig is I'm kind of an extrovert. And so being forced to be by myself to write a novel is the hard part for me. I know a lot of mm -hmm. novelists are introverts, of course, and so all they want is to be left alone to write their novel. I just, I like having people around. I like having people to banter with. Um, and I just kind of enjoy, maybe it's because I, I wrote in a newsroom for a lot of years, and a mm, newsroom is a yeah. bustling, happening place. I just like having that little buzz of background noise, and I like having people around. Hmm. Yeah, some of us are, yeah, we're all mm. a little different, you know. It's like I can listen to music and other people can't, and, and music balances me, and otherwise I'll, I'll dilly-dally and daydream everywhere. Right, But I right, have to, sure. to zone in, so you need that little ruckus in the background. I have to tell you that a friend sending us um, really interesting gifts uh -oh. from your conversation <laughs> with us, uh, toilets and books. Um, Mona Lisa breastfeeding. I mean, this oh, is nice. this is just this is an interesting <laughs> conversation when I'm getting gifts like this. I just have to share that that uh, yeah, this is this is good. Well, so and this is this is of course why the internet was invented so that we can at our fingertips have pictures of Mona Lisa breastfeeding. That is yes, absolutely exactly this right is, next to or sitting on the toilet. And that's why you need to unplug at Hardee's, everybody. That's it. That's the new motto for Hardee's: unplug and and have I, your coat. But, the, you know, <laughs> yes. we are in the midst of this this culture thing with with cell phones. You know, because right. people die. I something happened in our neighborhood the other night where, you know, I think the police eventually had to show up and it had to do with somebody taking somebody else's cell phone. And you would have thought they were being murdered. Seriously. Yeah. And, and then you realize people put everything about themselves and everybody they know on their cell phone. This little box. And it's, a, it's an emergency when you lose your cell phone. It's not an emergency when you lose your telephone that's connected to a landline. Yeah. But it's like it's... It's like you put yourself into your cell phone, and now you have to protect it. Right, mm. right. Wow, wow. And it certainly made a crime fiction writer's life more difficult because there's so many times you were like, okay, I can't have this character be able to have a cell phone right now because she would just call the cops and the scene would be over with really fast. So how am I going to separate oh, her from yes. her cell phone <laughs> yeah, in a way that seems that genuine? There. Oh, yeah, it's always, always a problem. I want to ask, okay, as a, as a writer, because we have this whole movement to get people to take a walk. Mm -hmm. And just for health, to actually breathe, to... Buy on your neighbors. Yeah, you can take your phone to photograph something so we all know about it. Um, creativity, ma mindfulness, the whole thing. But now if you could take a one-hour walk with anybody, alive or passed on, as a writer, you know, if you want to tap on someone's brain or right. you want to actually go, okay, I want to I make notes of how you talk or whatever it is for your next book, who would it be and where would you take that walk? And they, they can be alive or dead, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. or fiction. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take a walk with Harper Lee. Ah, nice. 
To Kill a Mockingbird is, uh, to me, the, the, the greatest crime thriller of all time. And I would just love to walk with her and talk about her process and also ask her. And, and I, I know I'm a big fan, so I know her friends called her Nell. Nell, why didn't you write another one? Oh my God! I, I just I feel like we were we were robbed of a, of about fifteen or twenty great novels that she could have written us because there was there was there were more stories to be told from uh, from Monroeville for sure, and um, I, I just I, I would love to be able to take a walk with her for sure. Excellent. Cool. Where would you go? Oh, we would just we I, I mean I you know hopefully uh, yeah around Hardy. her town in, in in Alabama or to Hardee's. There are a lot of Hardee's. We're, we're we're in the southeast of America here, so maybe I don't, yeah. Could I? Well, she was a you know of course known as being a very down to earth woman. So yeah, maybe I'd just take her to Hardee's. Yeah, Hardee's, and you could go walk through the drive-through. I know people like Nancy who've done that. I did once. Yeah, funny. walk right through the drive-through and order your food. It was really no, fun. We'd yeah, wanna, we'd want to do it at the counter. I'd want to be able to sit down with her and, and talk with her as long as as long as she would have me. There you go. But there is something about walking through a drive-through that really freaks everybody out. I know. And don't dri- don't go through a drive-through dressed as a clown. No, That's you another can't tip. do that either. Yes, yeah, so especially it's fun. a bank. No, you can't do. Can't do it. So, what is your champagne toast? What are you happy about? So, as you know, my my book, Closer Than You Know, comes out on Tuesday, and I'm really excited because, you know, this is a, a book I've been working on for a long time, of course. it's It's been through my drafting process, a couple of different edits, the copy edits, all these things, and finally, it is getting to the most exciting part. It is in the hands of the readers. It is so exciting, cool. my champagne Sunday toast is to readers. Uh, I love them. We were we were talking off air before the show about how a good book really needs a good reader, and I and I mm. have been so blessed uh, over the the eight books I've been doing this to have some wonderful wonderful readers, and and I'm just so thankful to them. Uh, largely because with without my readers, I would just be a guy muttering to himself in a Hardee's. So I, I need people to to buy my book so I can continue doing this for a living. Um, but I'm just I'm so excited to share this book with them and to hear what they have to think about it. It is exciting. I think it's exciting. I get mm-hmm. excited when there's good new music and good books. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's just a, it's an exciting thing in the world because it's just somebody's created something. I think it was Jerry Seinfeld who said it, even like a good joke is like something that was created and there wasn't one there in that space. Right. And so whenever right. an author put something good, whether it's a poem, a book, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. a song, you know, it's just an exciting thing because something has been created that's magical and takes you to another place and makes you think. And and your book, (laughs) it makes you think for sure. And uh, it makes it, uh, you just you go through a series of emotions with it, and and I really appreciate that. And you're on tour now too. So I saw on your on your website, everyone, bradparksbooks.com, uh, that you're going to be you're going to go to Florida and all kinds of places. Well, and for the, if you're in Arizona, I'm going to be at the world famous Poison Pen Bookstore cool. on uh, this this coming Wednesday, actually. So it's in Scottsdale, wow. the Poison Pen. Uh, I'm going to be appearing there with Chris Rice, Christopher Rice, who's uh, the the son of Anne Rice, the famous vampire chronicler, wow. uh, and he is a, a wonderful, marvelous writer in his own right. So it's it's going to be a twofer at the Poison Pen on Wednesday night. I uh, hope all of your uh, your listeners can come out for that one. Um, I have a, a question from a listener who wants to know: Did you read Harper Lee's *Go Set a Watchman*? <laughs> 
I did read Harper Lee's Ghost Head of Watchmen. And it, it, I, I think that's probably the biggest reason I wish she had written more books, because I saw how much she improved from that book to To Kill a Mockingbird, and what a quantum leap she made. And I bet she would have kept getting better and better and better as she gained more confidence as a writer. Uh, mm-hmm. So yes, Go Set a Watchman um, was <laughs> uh, interesting because it, the, the first uh, three, four chapters of it, and they're very long, by the way, read like a really poorly written romance novel where there's no sex. Um, and then, and then you get these like few charming passages of the the character who is at this point a grown woman reminiscing about her childhood. And obviously, some very smart editor in New York said, "Hey, the stuff where she's reminiscing, do the book based on that, not the rest of this bad romance stuff." Uh, so yeah, I, I I did read that, and I I kind of it, you know, it's the kind of book that you wish had been released to scholars. But maybe we didn't need to sell 1.5 million copies of it to the reading public because it was nothing that was truly worth reading. I, I think when, when Harper Lee was in her right mind, she didn't want people reading that book. And, uh, and you can certainly see why mm. when you read it. It's, it's, not, it's not her best work. Oh, well, I think it's sad, though. And, you know, I think the whole process to even get published is such a – I mean, that's the hard thing. You can write something – and then you have to go through the publishing, and that can take time off from the writing, right? To actually. Oh, absolutely! Text. Oh, sure, sure. And yeah, and then if someone's gone, then that's it. You know, it's kind of like a well, that's that's what you get. So you know what I mean? So real quick, when having things published internationally, is that a process that you get involved in? You know, once that distribution starts to happen, do you? I mean, you don't get to proofread what it's like in, you know, Hebrew, like you say. Yeah, no, I, I go over my my Hebrew edition line by line and uh, <laughs> and point out uh, falsehoods. No, uh, no, the, the 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 international thing is just a load of fun because, um, you know, if nothing else, when your wife needs you to do the dishes or something like that, you can be like, oh, I'm sorry, honey, I can't answer you right now. I'm I'm uh, answering questions from my German edition editor. Like it, it kind of, you know, it, it maybe works. No, that doesn't work at all. Um, you know, it's just. It's, I was going to say, fun. I don't I mean, believe you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, or or the French edition, uh, like like and you like I I actually I I use Google Translate to try and see what people are saying about my book. Um, yeah, how funny. And um and so like there like the French edition of say nothing. Uh, there there was there was this line in in this review in what I think was a fairly prominent magazine, and it said, uh, and again I'm doing this in Google Translate. It said, not a word I liked. And I'm like, wow, that's that's pretty harsh. There were 120,000 words in this book, and you didn't even like one of them. And then I realized that not a word was how say nothing translated into French. So really, I was off the hook. They were saying they liked oh, the book. Oh gosh, but, uh, you makes know, you, you, you wonder though. Yeah, what you, the you, translations you kind of are really saying. Um, yeah, or like my, uh, uh, closer than you know has not come out in Germany yet, but um, the the Germans tr- decided to give it a different title, which is oh. Ich vernichte dich, which uh, translates to I will destroy you. Oh no, that's really so not that's the a, thing oh that god. ran through my mind. Oh my god, yeah, that's so the, much fun. I, I, I have a friend who she's a New York Times author, uh, best-selling author on organizing, uh, Regina Leeds, you know, uh-huh. and her books got translated, and, and they did audio. And so she was listening to her books in different languages. That's what she was getting. She was cracking up. She was just like, this is, this is like, 
Who knew? <laughs> you know what I, I mean? Uh, I love um, looking at the covers, like the, the Italian cover for Say Nothing. And, and Say Nothing is a book that features a federal judge whose children have been kidnapped by somebody looking to control the outcome of a Casey's hearing. So it's a, it's a really heavy book, but it, it features this judge. Well, the Italian cover has this guy with no shirt on it. And I'm like, how many judges do you know go around topless? Like, did the kidnappers who came to take his kids, did they also take his shirt? Is that how it worked? But, you know, that's the Italians. They want a topless judge. Hey, fine. You know, viva that's la difference. That's funny. Oh, it's wow. A, it's a bodice ripper. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Say nothing. <laughs> Say nothing. <laughs> oh, well, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on the release of Closer Than You Know. Everybody, go to bradparksbooks.com, of course, Amazon Indie Books, uh, Google, all those places you can get him. Uh, also, go look on his website and, and see where he may be coming to a city near you or a Hardee's near you. <laughs> you never know. So thank you so much for joining us, and do keep us posted on the next one. Absolutely, we do. Lisa and Nancy, thanks so much for having me on. So see you. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Have a great day. You too. Awesome stuff.